The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Let us then look away to the Lord of glory, made for us in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let us look to the cross where we see him lifted up for us, made a curse for us, dying in the likeness of sinful flesh. And our hearts must worship in wonder and in joy as we see the great plan of God's salvation for us through Christ made in the likeness of our sinful flesh. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The True Nature of Christ. Your life may not be adversely affected if you do not know much about biology, psychology, or geology, but your understanding of Christology can significantly impact your life now and for eternity. A sound scriptural grasp of the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ can establish you on safe and firm spiritual ground. How can we develop a solidly biblical orthodox understanding of this vitally important subject? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The True Nature of Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all of the revelation of thy truth, but most of all we thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us and bring us back to thee. Use thy word to each listening heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing in our study of Romans 8, 3. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, this text is one of the most important in the Bible for a discussion of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior himself once asked a group of men, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? The answer to that question is the touchstone of faith. First, we have the affirmation that Jesus Christ was the Son of God sent by God to do the work of redemption of which the epistle has had so much to say. The Bible teaches us, of course, that Jesus Christ is not a Son of God, but the Son of God. Or, we might better put it, He is God the Son. We are reminded that in the opening phrases of the epistle, Paul stated 
that the gospel concerned God's Son, Jesus Christ, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When we discussed that text in the beginning of this series, we pointed out that Christ was made in his humanity and declared in his deity. And we quoted a parallel verse from the epistle to the Galatians, where the same distinction is presented. There we find that God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, sent forth and made. And once more we have the statement that God sent his son and that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, as our text states. There have been those who claim that Paul never mentioned the virgin birth of our Lord. But here is one of several texts that are incomprehensible without the assumption that Christ was God the Son come into this world without a human father. Paul simply took it for granted, as many parts of his epistles show. It could not be said of any human being that God sent him into the world. Furthermore, it could not be said of any human being that he was God's own son, in the way the possessive is set forth here. To as many as received him, the Lord Jesus gave power, exousia, permit, authority, to become the sons of God but Christ himself was eternally God's own son. That he was God's begotten son will become clear as we proceed with the meaning of this verse. It may well be pointed out in passing that the translation of John 3.16 and 18 in the New Revised Standard Version shows evident bias and prejudice on the part of the translators since they have just omitted the word begotten from the translation even though it is in the Greek of all ancient manuscripts inherent in the word. Further, the translators have removed these great verses from the lips of Jesus by putting quotation marks at the end of John 3.15 as though the Lord had stopped talking at that point. This, of course, is not translation, but this is editing the New Testament. Now, the text we are discussing in Romans demands the doctrine of the virgin birth by stating that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It should be noted that it does not say that he sent his own son in the flesh, or in the likeness of flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. His body indeed was a body of flesh, both before and after his resurrection. For at the time of the incarnation it was stated, A body hast thou prepared me. And this was later described as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. After the resurrection also, Christ referred to this by saying to Thomas, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me to have. Luke twenty four thirty nine. Now the flesh which the Lord Jesus Christ had, his physical body, was not of the same nature as our bodies, though it resembled these bodies in outward appearance. He was made in the likeness of our sinful fleshly bodies, but thank God there was a difference so great between his body and ours and his nature and ours that he could be the lamb without blemish and without spot. If he had been the son of Joseph, his body would have been a body of sinful flesh subject to all the same ills and corruptions as the bodies which we possess. 
and his nature could not have been other than our sinful nature. It should be realized that if we show that the body of Christ was different from our body, and if we show that his nature was different from our nature, we will have shown that his origin was totally different from ours. First, let us note the Bible proofs that the physical body of Jesus Christ differed from ours. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter introduced the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ as follows. Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter then quotes a prophecy in which Christ speaks of the nature of his body. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now what was this flesh that would rest in hope? What was this flesh that could not see corruption? A great orthopedic surgeon told me that the human body contains death and decay in every cell, and that as soon as the heart ceases to beat, all of these forces spring out in every fiber of the flesh, in every drop of blood, and in every cell of bone structure in the entire body. I had asked him why he did not use pieces of bone from bodies that had been recently killed in automobile accidents in making bone grafts instead of taking the pieces of bone from another part of the body of the patient undergoing the transplant. He explained that the forces of death in the human body move so rapidly that he would fear to transplant from a body that had been killed more than half an hour. And if you have read in the papers something about bone banks, the bones that are used in such quick-frozen operations are the result of amputations from living bodies. The Bible teaches flatly that these forces of death, which exist in all of our bodies, did not exist in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beside him on the cross were two thieves who were dying in the same fashion that he was supposedly dying. But if a medical examiner had been at the cross and had been required to sign a certificate stating the cause of death, he would have had to certify differently for the thieves and for Christ. These men who were dying beside the Savior died from wounds and loss of blood. A physician today would probably say cause of death, exsanguination from inflicted wounds. But the Lord Jesus Christ died because when he was completely ready and his hour had come, he dismissed his spirit. He had declared flatly, No man taketh my life from me, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. How would it be possible to put life to death? And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And thus it was that while the thieves were slowly dying, the Lord was in complete command of his life and of all of the details that led to his death. He did not have his head lolling upon his breast in weakness. He held it erect until the final moment when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He did not faint in weakness so that he could scarcely more than whisper, but he cried with a loud voice after six hours of that experience on the cross. 
And thus in many small ways the Lord God has filled the narrative of Christ's death with details which confirm the statement of the book of the Acts that his body did not die in the usual fashion and that it did not see corruption. He died, but he dismissed his spirit. Now how did this flesh, so different from your flesh and mine, come to have these vital differences? The Bible flatly teaches us that Jesus Christ did not have a human father, but that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Now we're aware of the contentions of the liberals that this doctrine is unimportant, but anyone who has followed my argument to this point must recognize immediately that the virgin birth of Christ is linked with the nature of his death and the quality of his resurrection and that our text in Romans is the explanation that ties all these truths together in a consistent whole. He was not given a body of sinful flesh, but he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Oh, we can well understand that Satan, the father of error, has done everything possible to deny, distort, and destroy the biblical doctrine of the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why modernism has been created by Satan to lessen the value of the biblical narrative and thus to deny the source of Christ's body and the essence of his inner nature. There have been wordy battles over the meanings of the terms modernism and fundamentalism, and the issues have been somewhat obscured by the blatant extravagances of some who have called themselves fundamentalists. But we must not be moved from the truths that are involved in the foundation of Christian doctrine. The word fundamental comes from a Latin word meaning foundation, and all of us believe in foundations for our buildings, and many of us believe in foundations for our faith. Roughly speaking, a modernist is a man who approaches the Bible as being a human book subject to the errors of humanity and therefore subject to the acceptance or rejection in whole or in part by the processes of human reason. Those to whom the word modernist has been chiefly and correctly applied are men who take the Bible and by their reason divide it into that which is acceptable or not acceptable to themselves. We who believe in fundamentals, though we may not call ourselves fundamentalists, Submit our reason to the divine revelation that is in the word of God, accepting in advance that the book is of divine origin and given to exercise absolute lordship over man and all his thinking. When we look closer at this matter in respect to the doctrine of the virgin birth, we can see the division between the two attitudes in a most marked fashion. The man who accepts the word of God as the supreme court from which there is no appeal finds the virgin birth taught in Matthew and in Luke, and by inference in Genesis, Isaiah, John, and in many of Paul's epistles. One good reference would be entirely sufficient, but there are many, and the honest man will admit beyond question that the Bible teaches that Jesus was born without a human father, even if the man rejects the Bible and does not believe it. His honesty will force him to admit that the Bible does teach it. The liberal or modernist not only rejects the fact of the virgin birth, but attempts to rule it out of the Bible. To that end, he sets up an arbitrary standard, calls Mark the oldest gospel, and rejects anything that does not find its roots in the second gospel. 
He then seeks to explain away the other references that are supporting proofs to the flat statements of Matthew and Luke. This has been remarkably evident in the controversy that developed at the time of the publication of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. The translators rendered Isaiah 7.14 in a fashion that was calculated to destroy the doctrine of the virgin birth. The Hebrew states, Behold, an Alma shall conceive and bring forth a son. The revisers have rendered this, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. In the margin, they say, or virgin. Now we can brand as folly or stupidity the actions of the minister who caused a page of this revision with this false translation to be publicly burned. Truth does not need to destroy error by physical means. Truth is sufficient to make its own way in spite of all enemies, and the revision has not changed the fact of the virgin birth in the slightest. But let us see what the translators have had to do in order to change the translation of Alma from virgin, as it is rendered in the King James Version, to young woman, as it is in this revision. They had before them a translation of the Old Testament into Greek that was made some decades before the time of Christ by a group of scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, known as the Septuagint. This translation was undoubtedly known to the leaders of the early church. And there are times when the Holy Spirit has given new light and meaning to certain Hebrew passages by enlarging the meaning through the Greek rendering. When these scholars came to Isaiah 7.14, they translated from the Hebrew, Behold, an Alma shall conceive. And in their Greek they rendered it, Behold, a Parthenos shall conceive. Now, there is no Greek scholar in the world who will not admit immediately that there is only one meaning for Parthenos, which is the meaning of virginity, a maiden who has never been with a man. Our word Parthenon, from the name of the great building in Athens, comes from this, for it was the temple to the Athena the Virgin, and was thus called the Virgin Temple. The attempt to make the word Alma mean any young woman will simply not stand the test of scholarship, and its translation by the questionable word young woman is a revelation of bias and prejudice in extreme form. As far as we can ascertain, the first time that anybody in history ever attempted to say that the word Alma meant young woman was three or four hundred years after Christ when men began to attack the scripture and seek to destroy it by any means possible. Thus they wished to render the word by young woman to destroy the effectiveness of Matthew's quotation of Isaiah as being a fulfillment of prophecy. Further, when we come to the gospel of Matthew, we have the following. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a Parthenos, shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Even the revisers of this new revised standard version were not brazen enough in the pursuit of their prejudice to translate this other than the Greek word demanded. And in the same volume in which we find the revisers translating Alma by young woman, we find them accepting the fact that the Greek is beyond question translatable by no other term than that of virgin 
And so we read in the Revised Standard Version, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when these facts are clearly faced, it can be seen that the translators have openly repudiated the doctrine of inspiration in their attempt to strike from the scriptures that which the Bible unquestionably teaches. For when they accept that the Greek of Matthew teaches that Mary was a virgin and that she brought forth Christ without having known a man, and when they torture the Hebrew to make it deny the Greek of the New Testament, they say in some, the Holy Spirit has not written this book. This book is the work of man, and men have made mistakes which we will attempt to correct. In reality, it is the 20th century echo of the cry which was heard in Jerusalem when the Lord of glory walked on earth. We will not have this man to reign over us. Now to sum up then, the Lord Jesus was born into this world without a human father, having been begotten by God the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Blessed Virgin, Mary. He had a body that was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but it was not sinful flesh. In our next study, the Lord willing, we shall see the differences of his nature which make him above, beyond, and apart from any human being, while he has yet nevertheless a definite humanity. For in the nature that he received by the divine intervention in his begetting, he was God himself. God was the father of Christ's divine nature, the Blessed Virgin was the mother of the body that was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Finally, our text is also a vivid theological explanation of Christ's statement to Nicodemus concerning his death in terms of the lifting up of the serpent by Moses in the wilderness. The exact verse that Jesus spoke in John 3, 14 and 15 is as follows. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why did Jesus compare his death to that of the lifting up of the serpent by Moses? The people in the wilderness had murmured against God and had been chastised by the plague of burning fiery serpents. They appealed to Moses, and he, in turn, went to God. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now the symbolism is extraordinary, and our Lord's own reference to it explains it beyond question. The people had been bitten by serpents. Their cure was to be in the likeness of a serpent. There was, of course, no therapeutic value in a serpent exhibited on a pole as a cure for the venom of a fiery serpent. The situation in the wilderness was planned by God in order to bring forth the truth that is established by our text. For we, in our wilderness journey through this life, we have been bitten by sin. If we are to be cured, it must be by the intervention of God, and he intervenes by coming down himself in the likeness of the thing that had bitten us. The brazen serpent on a pole in the midst of the camp was a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, exhibited upon the cross of Calvary and cursed by God in that hour in order to provide redemption for us.
and as the serpent on the pole was the symbol of the destroyer destroyed, so Christ on the cross is the manifestation of the destruction of the power that had enslaved us, thus making complete deliverance possible. Let us then look away to the Lord of glory, made for us in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let us rejoice that his flesh differed from our decaying, dying flesh. Let us thank God that he was eligible to be the lamb without spot and blemish, so that we could have a true savior. Let us look to the cross where we see him lifted up for us, made a curse for us, dying in the likeness of sinful flesh and our hearts must worship in wonder and in joy as we see the great plan of God's salvation for us through Christ made in the likeness of our sinful flesh. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt take this word in this hour, and that thou shalt use it in our hearts to exalt the Lord Jesus, to establish us more firmly in the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power now, Till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is fully God and fully man. He was made for us in the likeness of sinful flesh and delivered over to death on the cross to secure our everlasting redemption. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The True Nature of Christ. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting us at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The True Nature of Christ, or simply request message number R8-5. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Bible Under Attack. Believers embrace the Holy Scriptures as the very Word of God. But for years, the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible has been challenged by the enemies of the Gospel. This five-chapter booklet addresses subjects such as Jesus and the Scriptures, written by God, the inspiration of the Scriptures. This booklet powerfully reaffirms the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of the living Word of God. Ask for your free copy of the Bible under attack when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you've benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.